Our second passage this morning, it picks up with the Ephesians passage, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, also at page 149 of the New Testament section of your pew Bibles. The gifts God gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as part as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Speaking the truth in love. Could there be a more countercultural message in today's world? Ephesians is a letter to the church about the church. It probably wasn't written particularly to the Ephesians. It's more likely a general letter about how to be a Christian and how to be the Christian church, any church, even ours. Some of the words we read are probably familiar one body, one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. The letter goes on to describe the gifts God has given us for good, for the good of the church, and then warns of the threats to unity, a unity that is both the goal and the measure of our maturity as Christians. The writer offers a simple guide to living out this uncommon unity, speaking the truth in love. We must grow up into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. It's easy enough to understand what it means to speak. We can speak through words or actions. The more difficult question is this. What is this truth which we are called to speak? Is it Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? Is it the gospel, the good news, the truth of God's love made known in Christ? It's probably both, but perhaps the writer is being less churchy and theological here and more literal. Could it be that he's saying that the way to build a healthy church is for its members and its leaders to say things that are plainly true, to speak what is real and honest, to put away falsehood, as the passage says, to open our eyes and describe what we see, to proclaim theological truths too, but first, just to tell the truth. That's not always easy. Telling the truth means naming out loud where there is poverty or brokenness, hatred or unfairness, and how we and others have failed to heal it, and at times even to see it. It means pointing out inequality and challenging 
those who profit from it. Where there is exploitation or misconduct by the powerful, it means saying so. And where there is pain among the silenced, it means voicing it. This passage is about unity, after all. There is no unity in silence. There is no reconciliation in avoidance. There is no moving on and calling it focusing on the gospel. When we withhold the truth because our conversation partners might speak a different truth, when we refuse to risk the hurt, the conflict, even the lost donors or members, our holding back does not result in one body. It results in no body. Nobody learning, nobody growing, nobody transforming, nobody being church. There's one problem, though, isn't there? We don't actually agree on all the facts, on what is truth. A Barna poll showed that 72% of Americans believe there's no such thing as absolute truth. 72%. A third of Americans say they trust no one but their own instincts when they read or watch the news. I bet we've all heard someone say, well, I'm entitled to my opinion. We've probably said it ourselves. That implies that all opinions are equally valid, which feels egalitarian and tolerant, doesn't it? Here in Northern California, we try hard to be open to other perspectives. Everyone's entitled to his or her opinion, right? But as Patrick Moynihan used to say, everyone is entitled to his own opinion, but not to his own facts. Jesus himself treated truth as essential. Jesus says that if we are his disciples, we'll know the truth and it will set us free. That's a wonderful promise. But it's more than a promise. It's a calling. We are called, it is part of our calling, to open our hearts and minds and ears and eyes, to be ready to see the truth and even to pursue the truth, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it comes from someone we'd rather not believe, even when it requires us to change. And then we are called to speak it. And maybe that's why the rest of the instructions to the church and to us as Christians are so important. The way to wholeness and unity in the church and any community, a family, a school, a business, even our sorely divided nation, is to speak the truth in love. Not because we're trying to be nice or accommodating. Not because we're trying to be sugary sweet. Those things have nothing to do with truth. Rather, for two much more important reasons. First, because it's the only thing that works. When Abraham Lincoln was a young man, he gave a speech at a Presbyterian church to a temperance society. His message was that temperance folks ought to be kinder to drinkers and sellers of alcohol, rather than shunning them or denouncing them as moral pestilences, because people are never less likely to change, to convert to new ways of thinking or acting, than when it means joining the ranks of their denouncers. 
Lincoln explained that to have expected them not to meet denunciations with denunciations and anathema with anathema was to expect a reversal of human nature. Lincoln warned that if you treat a person as despicable, he will retreat within himself, close all avenues to his head and his heart, and even though your cause be naked truth itself, transformed to the heaviest lance, harder than steel, and sharper than steel can be made, and though you throw it with more than Herculean force and precision, you shall be no more able to pierce him than to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise with a rye straw. There's been a lot written lately about whether there's any point in trying to understand or even to be civil toward people with whom you disagree vehemently. I understand the frustration, especially where it appears there's little effort or no effort to try to understand you, or where there's even an actual effort to harm you or others. I get it. It's easy to convince ourselves that our concern for those who are oppressed should outweigh our concern for the target of our critique. And so we say, with a certain amount of self-righteousness, no less, whatever comes to mind. What's happened as a result is that we are edging closer and closer to a place where our political and ideological discourse has become an exercise in dehumanization diminishing our own humanity in the process. This does not achieve what we want. Brene Brown writes, dehumanizing and holding people accountable are mutually exclusive. Humiliation and dehumanizing are not social justice tools. They're emotional offloading at best, emotional self-indulgence at worst. And if our faith in God asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, that should include politicians, media, and the strangers on Twitter with whom we most violently disagree. When we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own. The way toward unity, toward peace, toward maturity, toward growing up in Christ says the letter to the Ephesians, is to speak the truth in love. Love is desiring not just the wholeness of the world, but the wholeness of the person, even that person with whom we disagree. Love is believing that another's voice, another's mind, another's heart is as worthy as our own, even if we disagree. I'm not talking about accommodation or compromise. I'm not talking about cowing to manipulation or accepting abuse or extremism. I'm talking about real truth and real love, and that is hard. It is challenging. I'm not sure we even know how to do this, but it is the task of the beloved community, the church, to figure it out and to encourage and support each other in this challenge, because I don't know anyone who can do this alone. I saw one example the other night. I went to see the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I can't recommend it enough. Fred Rogers was a Presbyterian minister who made a career out of speaking the truth in love. 
The first week Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was on the air, the king of the neighborhood of make-believe, King Friday the 13th, established a border guard and demanded a wall, and this is 1968. <laughs> and it fell to Lady Aberlin and others to teach him that even a king could welcome the stranger in need. Back in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, the neighborhood policeman was black, and in one momentous scene, shortly after some very ugly news stories about desegregated swimming pools, Officer Clemens and Fred Rogers dipped their bare feet into a wading pool. Mr. Rogers addressed death, divorce, anger, all sorts of hard topics, treating each person he encountered, each person to whom he spoke, as precious, as a child of God. We are to speak the truth in love for a second important reason. Not one of us holds the entire truth. I'm not suggesting moral relativism. Philosopher Isaiah Berlin put it like this. I am not a relativist. I do not say, I like coffee with milk and you like it without. I am in favor of kindness and you prefer concentration camps. But just because I disagree with someone or with a group does not mean that they are evil or ignorant people who have nothing important to say. Erasmus, the Dutch Christian Renaissance scholar, said, Humility is truth. I'm not 100% sure I know what he meant, but it might mean that if we're so prideful of our own perspective that we fail to listen to others, then we will miss out on the whole truth. It reminds me of a poem by an Israeli poet, Yehuda Amici, called The Place Where We Are Right. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. We could just stand in the ruins, yelling ourselves hoarse because we know we're right, or we could speak the truth in love. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.